Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Snyder Cut. I don't know what episode we're up to, but I am your esteemed host, Jeff Snyder. Uh, left behind from Toronto. I should be in Toronto right now, but I am here in the office, and I am glad that I am because we've got a good show coming up today, including the second half of the show will feature not only maybe the biggest rumor of the week that we've had, but uh, a, a fantastic interview with uh, Scott Beck and Brian Woods, who wrote A Quiet Place and just directed this movie Haunt that is going to be coming out on September 13th. So make sure that you stay tuned for the entire episode, because I promise you, you will not want to miss the rumor of the week that is in the middle of this interview. Um, so where are we going to kick it off this week? I think we have to start with this crazy rich Asians drama, guys. Um you know, Adele Lim, who is the co-writer of Crazy Rich Asians, uh, along with Pete Chiarelli, she sort of came out and said, you know, she's not going to be involved in the sequel because of a pay dispute. You know, according to Adele, uh, I think, or, or The Hollywood Reporter, you know, um, I don't know if they, they got these numbers from her or, or what. But uh, Adele was, post, was paid $110,000. She was going to be paid $110,000. That was the offer uh, for the sequel, while Pete Chiarelli was going to make $800,000-something. And, and, of course, you know, that is an eye-popping disparity. Uh, now, is it because she's a woman or because she's, you know, a, a person of color? Like, I, I don't think that, it, that it's that. I don't think that they're, uh, you know, nefarious reasons or intentions behind this. I think that it really just came down to a matter of experience to Warner Brothers, although I'm not sure what goes into that formula for experience. You know, Pete Chiarelli is a little bit more of an experienced feature writer. He did The Proposal. Um, Adele Lim has been working primarily in television, but you know she—it's—it's it's not like she's some newcomer. Like she's been writing since 2001, so she has paid her dues. Uh, and while you know I'm not necessarily opposed to someone like Pete Chiarelli being paid more than Adele, uh, eight hundred thousand to one hundred thousand is way too large a gap. And if I'm Warner Brothers, I'm kind of surprised that they didn't try to close that uh, a little bit more. I mean, I don't know. Like we don't know. There, there's a lot to this that we don't know. And kudos to, to Rebecca Sun of the Hollywood Reporter, who has done a great job reporting it out. Uh, but, you know, uh, it, it, it's all about, you know, where is this information coming from? Is it coming from the studio? Is it coming from Adele Lim's agents? I mean, you know, effectively, uh, Adele has basically burned a bridge with Warner Brothers, I think, in all of this. So it's like, is that money that she would have made on this sequel, even if they had bumped her up to three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand, 500000 is that worth it in the long run to now have a, a studio the size of Warner Brothers maybe not so excited to work with you in the future because you went public with this? And again, for, it's my understanding all this went down like seven months ago. Um, it's only, you know, servicing now for 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 whatever reason um again it's it's tricky it's tricky i think i think it's complicated but we have to be w willing to acknowledge that it's complicated I, I don't think you know as more women and people of, of color are are hired in hollywood and uh, again that push for diversity and inclusivity is great and it's something that, that the industry needed to do um and and you know so kudos to all the studios that are embracing this but you know there listen there's a lot of writers plenty of white writers who feel that they're not being paid what they deserve. And so is it every time that, you know, a, a black writer, an Asian writer, a female writer 
every time that they feel like they're not being paid what they deserve, does it become a, a, a bias thing? Uh, you know, or is it just simply like this is a business and – you know, I, I don't know if if one hundred ten thousand dollars was Warner Brothers' first offer to Adele Lim. Um, I understand that it was a, a significant pay raise over what she made on the first film. She may have just been paid scale on that movie, uh, which seems crazy. You know, like Crazy Rich Asians, huge blockbuster for Warner Brothers. It did phenomenally well around the world, particularly because you know the budget wasn't anything crazy. It was like forty or fifty million dollars. Um, so. You know, she she should be sharing in that success. So if $110,000, which is the reported offer, if that represents a gigantic raise over the first film, what did she make on the first film? 50 or 60 grand? That doesn't seem right to me. Um, but then again, you know, the, the, the argument exists that she didn't create these characters. This is based on a huge book. So, you know, a lot of that work is done. She didn't write the first draft of the screenplay. Pete Chiarelli did that on his own. Uh, so she sort of, you know, came in later in the process. And it's not that Warner Brothers didn't value those contributions. Clearly, it didn't value them as much as it valued Peter's. Uh I, I just think 110000 it definitely strikes me as, as low. Um, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, regardless of experience, they have the same title. Pete and, and Adele. They're, they're both co-writers. And if you're not going to pay them the exact same, which, again, I think that that is not realistic. Uh, and I don't think that everybody needs to be paid the exact same, male, female, you know, whatever. It's, it is about experience and, and a whole other, a whole range of other factors. But yeah, 800 to 1 is just a little crazy. I, I, I don't know if they just should have paid her more and bumped her up to three or four hundred thousand and, and let Pete keep his eight hundred thousand. I think that it was mentioned that Pete offered to cut his quote in half, but you know, she, she's Adele was right. It's not on Pete to offer up half of his salary out of the goodness of his heart or, or because you know of bad publicity. Like, I, I think Warner Brothers should have seen this sort of situation coming. Um, and and gotten out ahead of it again. I know it went down seven months ago, but. There, there was just you know some some talk about Toby Emmerich uh, not wanting to set a precedent and, and uh, precedent and backing his business affairs team and I and I understand that as well. You don't want every writer uh, on a sequel sort of bending you over, but I, I don't think that that's really what happened here. Um, you know, the, uh, one of the THR articles mentioned uh, like you know how Hollywood sometimes they'll they'll hire a diverse writer on a project but only to sort of add some cultural like sprinkle some cultural specifics on it uh and and again we don't know if if that was sort of what Adele Lim was asked to do here i imagine it was a, a much more significant than that um but i i just think that it's tough to make you know, make these judgments on on Twitter. Like you know, everybody thinks that they read an article and they know the entire story. Well, sometimes it's hard to report the entire story, uh, and you know, it's it's also about it's like was this something that an agent leaked to THR because they wanted to. I don't know. It's not like it was an active negotiation. It's not like anybody's trying to negotiate the press since this was all done so long ago. So is it an agent trying to embarrass Warner Brothers? Uh, is it something that Warner Brothers merely heard and, and sniffed out on its own and then decided to – or uh, Hollywood Reporter heard on its own, sniffed out, and decided to report? You know, it's it's interesting. But um, 
like I said, a lot, lot of nuance. I think that it is complicated. I don't necessarily think that Adele should be paid the exact same as Pete, but but certainly uh, when you're writing a sequel to a gigantic movie like Crazy Rich Asians, or co-writing it in this case, I think you do deserve to be paid more than $110,000. Um, I, I, again, a lot of it is, is agents uh, and writers these days. Well, I, I, I guess if this was seven months ago, it was before the WGA ATA standoff. But think of it these days, like, you know, writers had to fire their agents. So who is negotiating on their behalf? Um, could, you know, should, should Adele Lim have instructed her agents to come back at Warner Brothers and see if they would have raised their offer? Or was she simply, you know, insulted and offended by the first offer where she just threw up her hands and walked away? I don't know what other job she had waiting for her. Maybe she had a, a TV gig that was going to pay her, you know, the, the equivalent or, or way more than that over the course of a season. I don't know. Um, but, it, you know, it would have been nice for them to keep that entire creative te- team from Crazy Rich Asians and bring it over to the sequel. Ultimately, uh, it's going to look a little bit different. Um, elsewhere in the news, what do we got? Ben Wheatley directing a Tomb Raider movie. I've talked about this on Movie Talk. I talked about it on Meet the Movie Press uh, this morning over on After Buzz, which if you haven't uh, tuned in, check that out uh, after you listen to this podcast. You can hear me reunite with Simon Thompson over on uh, MTMP. But, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't love it. I mean, I didn't love uh, – I, I, not that I saw I didn't even see the first Tomb Raider. Because I didn't think it looked good. And people are like, well, you know, Jeff, you're so stubborn. You're so closed-minded. Why would I see a movie that didn't look good? Tomb Raider looked bad. Uh, Alicia Vikander doesn't really do it for me. Um, be- and, and Ben Wheatley doesn't really do it for me. I couldn't stand his last two movies, Free Fire or High Rise. You know, clearly he does have a voice as a filmmaker. It's not for everybody. Uh, but I, And so I, I guess in that front, I am enthused. It's not just some generic guy, uh, you know, an, uh, some anonymous hack. Um, ben Wheatley is interesting. I just think he's more interesting to film Twitter than, you know, the people overseas who are buying these movie tickets for Tomb Raider, since that's why we're getting a sequel is because, you know, of the international gross. It did okay here in the U.S. Probably, I don't even have the, the figures in front of me, but I imagine it was around 70, 75 million. Um, but, but yeah, overseas did way better and again ben wheatley a smart hire in the sense that yeah he has a voice but he's smarter because he can do a lot with a little he's used to working with pretty low budgets and i think that mgm needs to bring the budget down for the sequel i think the first one cost 90 or 95 million if you can make this for 60 to 70 you're looking at you know a, a, a lot higher chance of of turning a profit um but yeah, I just I don't think of him as like a guy with real commercial sensibilities. Uh, so it's good. that's going to be an interesting marriage. I think what it really does though is shows kind of how desperate M- MGM is getting. They tried doing you know two movies this summer where they dipped into the library like Child's Play, which I enjoyed, but you know didn't really take off. And then The Hustle, which was a remake of Dirty Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I feel like you know MGM could could keep going into its vault and and finding those movies that they could remake, but it's easier for them to just do, you know look at one of the movies that they did make and say, well, we didn't lose money on that one. We actually made you know twenty or thirty million or whatever kind of small profit Tomb Raider turned. So I, I guess this is a safer bet for them, but I don't think anybody was crying out for a sequel to that Alicia uh, Vikander movie. Um, Lord of the Rings, the Amazon series, cast Will Poulter in a leading role. I think it's the lead role. I don't know if Will Poulter is really a leading man to me. I think he's more interesting as a character actor. Um, 
he's a very good actor. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I just don't know. I've never been a Lord of the Rings guy, so I, I don't know what a Lord of the Rings hero, really, you know, what what being a hero in that world really entails. I mean, it's going to depend what kind of names they cast around Will Poulter, uh, and and the first one. Markella Kavanaugh, the Australian actress, you know, I, I, I've never seen her work. She doesn't have a very uh, high profile. Um, so they're definitely going to need to fill out some names in order to, to justify the budgets on these series, which are expected to be pretty high. I mean, you know, Lord of the Rings fans are accustomed to her, uh, accustomed to her sort of sense of scope and scale, and the TV shows are going to have to have those. Uh, Will Poulter, you know, I think he would have made an interesting Pennywise. Um I, you know, I liked. I thought he was okay in Detroit, but that wasn't a great movie. You know, he seemed to be in a completely different page than everybody else in Midsummer. So, like, you know, this. I thought it was interesting. This announcement, I guess, but I don't think it's like making me watch the Lord of the Rings series. Uh, again, I didn't watch Game of Thrones, so uh, fantasy has just never really been my bag. But I did think it was notable that they got an actor of of his caliber. Um, Richard Kelly announcing a Rod Serling biopic. I did a fair amount of research on Rod Serling this week, and that guy lived a hell of a life. I mean, it was pretty interesting outside of even the Twilight Zone stuff. You know, he served in the military, uh, and seeing death all around him in the Philippines obviously had a, a profound effect on his writing. Um, you know, he was a big free speech advocate, and that, that was one reason why he sort of created the Twilight Zone. Like, he was just tired of writing on everybody else's shows and having the network sponsors and censors weigh in on, on every little thing. Um, Richard Kelly is – I'm a big fan of the guy, even though he is one for three in my book. I, you know, Southland Tales is an, an ambitious, interesting mess of a movie, and the box is just kind of – it just kind of sits there like a box would. Um I didn't think it was particularly enlightening, but Donnie Darko is a masterpiece. And if you've made a masterpiece, then I feel like anything that you do going forward, i got to pay attention to it. And I so badly, if there's one filmmaker out there who I want to see recapture his mojo, I think it's it would be Richard Kelly. Just because I want to see more stories out of this guy. I want him to get more you know, cracks at bed. I want to see he has so many cool original screenplays that are just batshit insane that 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, they never had a chance at getting made. But these days with streaming, like, yeah, if I was a Netflix executive, Richard Kelly would be the first guy I'm calling. Um, so hopefully this Rod Serling biopic is just the thing to get him back on track. I'm very curious to see who's going to wind up casting. Um, cause yeah, those are some big shoes. Speaking of casting, Ryan Murphy casting, uh, his Hollywood series. And I'm told that Broadway sensation, Jeremy Pope has landed the lead. Uh, he'll be playing like a gay aspiring writer in, in 1940s Hollywood. The show is going to include Rock Hudson, Spencer Tracy. I'm sure there'll be some other, you know, Holly, real Hollywood screen legends, but you know, I think you know, Ryan Murphy, what he wants to do is explore sexuality in, in the golden age of Hollywood and, and, and show how things haven't necessarily changed 60, 70 years later. You still have actors hiding in the closet because uh, they have to project you know, masculinity on the big screen or whatever. Um, I'm not a huge Ryan Murphy guy. I love American Crime Story. I love the OJ series and the Versace series, but I don't really watch like American Horror Story. I didn't watch Glee or Feud or Pose or any of these sort of Ryan Murphy shows. I'm looking forward to The Politician, uh, but this is the kind of series that is up my alley, and it sounds like he's going to have a bunch of you know, his familiar faces like Darren Chris and Jim Parsons and uh, a, a few others. Um, he announced Holland Taylor 
and uh, and and someone else this week. But it, it, it's a cool cast, and this guy Jeremy Pope, man. Just in reading about him this week, he was like the first African American male actor to be nominated for t- in in two different categories. Uh, you know, in the same year for the for the Tonys, he's just the sixth actor period of all time to have that distinction. So his career is on the rise. Um, and so yeah, when I when I heard that it was his, and then didn't really get any callbacks or confirmation, everybody sort of clammed up. I was like, all right, I think I think I'm on the right track here. Because uh, this guy just has so much heat on him from his his dual turns on Broadway, there's no way that Hollywood is going to be able to turn out back on him, both the industry and the show. Um, elsewhere, we got Peter Capaldi and Pete Davidson joining the Suicide Squad. Guys, I've kind of lost track uh, of who is in the squad by now. There's just so many smaller roles. I mean, you know, talk of Pete Davidson. Pete Davidson is being eyed for a cameo, like. Man, can't we just wait to see if he agrees to do the cameo? I don't know. I guess I, I might have reported that. But we're getting real into the nitty-gritty here on Suicide Squad. And I and I just don't know that I have the interest uh, to, to be chasing all these little things. Like, I'll just, at this point, I'll see it when I see it. Um, but on, on another Pete Davidson front, I did think it was interesting that Hulu finally picked up his Sundance movie, Big Time Adolescence, with Griffin Gluck. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. I, I thought it had pretty good reviews out of Sundance. Uh, surprised that it you know took this long to land distribution, but if it means me being able to see it on on Hulu in a few weeks or whatever, uh, I'm all for it. Um, Emily Blunt and John Hamm joining Wild Mountain Time. It's like an Irish romantic drama based on uh, this this play outside Mullingar, and J- Emily Blunt and Jamie Dornan are basically going to play these star-crossed lovers and then their families are feuding over a patch of land but they have this steamy romance and john ham is jamie dornan's american cousin I, I i don't know i mean emily blunt jamie dornan sounds like a hot pair don't get me wrong i just don't think that this movie sounds particularly interesting um and the idea of john ham playing jamie dornan's american cousin not sure about that uh but john ham has a lot of good stuff coming up he's he's in the richard jewell movie uh, which you know I've heard is going to be coming out this fall. I don't know, you know, if Warner Brothers has made a final decision yet. I don't even think Toby Emmerich has seen the movie at this point. But you know, Clint Eastwood isn't someone who who needs like a long marketing campaign. And frankly, I think that Netflix has trained audiences to you know get the trailer for something that's going to be live in two or three weeks. So I don't think that you need months of a Richard Jewell campaign. I think that they can make that decision, you know, around Halloween or even close to Thanksgiving, and still put out a movie before the end of the year. Uh, John Hamm also in Lucy in the Sky. Hopefully I get to see next week. I think that looks terrific. That's from Noah Hawley, who did Fargo and Legion. And he's also in the Top Gun sequel next year. So a lot of big things happening for John Hamm. Um, I saw news that Christoph Waltz is doing a Queeby series with Liam Hemsworth. Finished watching Isn't It Romantic on the plane from New York to L.A., uh, over the weekend, uh, it was a movie I think I'd caught on a plane or, you know, the first half of it I had caught months and months ago. So I sort of had to, like, catch myself up. Um, Liam Hemsworth, though, guys, uh, don't I still don't think he can act. Might be a nice guy. Uh, I, I, we got to go Team Miley here. Liam Hemsworth, he's just like a block of wood 
on on screen. And the idea of him doing a Queeby series, like, ugh, I don't know, count, count me out. Surprised that they could get two-time Oscar winner Christoph Waltz. Uh, but, hey, if he just did a Woody Allen movie, like, you know, I, I don't know that Christoph Waltz really cares at this point. He's got his, his Bond return. He's got his two Oscars. Uh, he'll he'll do anything if the money is right. And Queeby, you know, is is paying top talent. They're still having troubles internally. Janice Mann, who used to run The Holland Reporter, she is uh, she left who uh, Queeby prior to this launch. It's the second executive that they lost in the last week or two. Um, so we got to, you know, sort of keep an eye on things Queeby-wise because um, that launch is coming. But uh, I don't know, man. Christoph Waltz and Liam Hemsworth, I don't think that that's going to do it for me. A24 putting together an Earthsea TV series. This is one of those projects I've been writing about for like a decade. It seems to change hands every year or two. Uh, A24 definitely, you know, ramping up into the TV space more. And I think that, that it's kind of a perfect fit. Um, they've got good sensibilities. I forget what other shows they're involved with, but I know that I I, I like them. Um, Earthsea, again, just one of these gigantic fantasy properties that I'm not terribly interested in. More interested in this uh, Tom McCarthy, Matt Damon movie. It dr- wisely dropped the title Stillwater, which was a terrible title. It involves Matt Damon's daughter, played by Abigail Breslin. Uh, she's over in France or something like that. She gets arrested or accused of a crime she didn't commit. And Matt Damon has to go over there to try to exonerate his daughter, but he also ends up falling in love. And, you know, he's got to deal with the language barrier and the court system. It's all very different. It sounds interesting. Big fan of Tom McCarthy, who won an Oscar for Spotlight. That movie almost starred Matt Damon. So now that they're working together, uh, I am interested. And Matt Damon, by the way, getting great reviews for Ford uh, v. Ferrari up in Telluride. Um, Other news this week, Justin Timberlake returning to the big screen. He was last in a Woody Allen movie a couple years ago, Wonder Wheel. But, you know, besides that appearance, hasn't really done a lot. Uh, you know, I used to track him for goddamn everything when I was a reporter at Variety. You don't really hear him going up for stuff anymore, but this is an indie drama. He's going to play like a, a, col- a, a college football phenom whose life sort of went off track and he ended up in jail. So he gets out of jail. He goes back to his hometown. He finds out he has to end up uh, caring for this kid. Uh, that you know, you didn't see that coming. Um, it's going to be a different kind of role for Justin Timberlake, but I've always enjoyed him on screen. Whether it's the Social Network, uh, Alpha Dog, like he, he's done some interesting work. So, you know, if this is something that he thinks that he can actually pull off, I'm, I'm down to give him the benefit of the doubt and and uh, you know see, see what he can come up with. Um, movies, movies this week, guys. I didn't really see a ton of movies. There weren't any screenings. The screenings really pick up next week uh, now that Toronto is underway. There were a ton of trailers. Black Christmas, Blumhouse dropped a trailer for that. Yeah, I, I mean, I like slasher movies. This one seemed a, a little too heavy on, on the, the the girl power angle, and I felt like it gave away Carrie Ellis and, and that he is involved in some sort of you know age-old age ritual on the campus. I mean, I guess it had to introduce that kind of twist, but I would have liked a little bit more mystery out of that trailer. I think I thought it gave away a little bit too much. Uh, greatly preferred the Just Mercy trailer. That stars Michael B. Jordan uh, as a lawyer. I think it's Brian Stevenson trying to get Jamie Foxx off of Death Row. Brie Larson co-stars. It's from uh, Destin Daniel Cretton, who directed her in, um, in Short Term 12. 
I think that you know Warner Brothers moved this up. It's coming out wide in January, but they moved it up for an Oscar qualifying run in December. They could wind up with a Best Picture nomination. That was a very powerful trailer. It wasn't. It, it wasn't a complete knockout, but I think I thought it looked very promising. Uh, also, looking forward to Waves, A24's movie with Sterling K. Brown, Taylor Russell, and Lucas Hedges and Calvin Harrison Jr. That one. I've heard great things. It, it has proven to be a little bit more divisive. I felt like it got raves out of Telluride, and now that the, the Toronto critics have finally seen it, people are, are cooling. It seems to be like two, a movie of two distinctly different halves, uh, so we'll see how that plays. Um, but I, I like the trailer. Uh, what else? What other trailers did we get this week? Bad Boys for Life. I've talked about that one ad nauseum. Guys, I love the original Bad Boys, but I'm not a big fan of Bad Boys 2, and it seems like the internet has sort of elevated Bad Boys 2 over the original. Big mistake, in my opinion. Um, I, I would love to see them bring back Tia Leone. Uh, but this trailer looked a little, uh, it looked a little generic. It looked a little... Martin Lawrence is looking long in the tooth, guys. He's looking thick. Uh, you know, the, the trailer emphasized the chemistry between uh, Will Smith's Mike Lowry and Marcus Burnett. And that is the way to go. I mean, that is why I'm interested in this franchise. But you got to give me a little bit more. What is the plot? What is the story? Who is the villain? Who are these three kids at the end? Uh, and that's sort of like, you know, the next generation of helpers that, that are going to have that. Sorry, that they're going to have. But uh, I don't know that any of them really interest me. It's Charles Melton, Alexander Ludwig, and Vanessa Hudgens, I think. Um, yeah. I don't know. It, feel, it feels like a Bad Boys movie with, like, Charlie's Angels or something tagged onto it. I, I don't know. Uh, you know, the stunts, it, it definitely looks like a Fast and Furious or John Wick movie. But I like that the stunts looked a little bit more grounded. Uh, you know, you don't have cars jumping from skyscraper to skyscraper or anything like that. Again, for January, it'll be a good palate cleanser after all the awards movies come out. And you're like, oh, I just want to get back to sort of having some fun. I've been so depressed by all these December releases. Uh, maybe, maybe Bad Boys for Life will be just the ticket. I was real intrigued by this Netflix trailer for Criminal. It's like uh, you know, an, a, an interrogation type of series. And I think that there's it's set in like four different countries. So each country I think has like three different episodes, three or four episodes. I don't know how it all stitches together or if it does stitch together, but I'm definitely interested in that unique format that Netflix is going to be offering. Uh, they also have the between two ferns movie, which dropped a, a fun trailer. Again, do I, that, that may be tough to sit through for 95 minutes. I mean, can you imagine a 95 minutes between two ferns episode? I don't know that I can, but it's packed wall-to-wall with fun celebrities. Uh, Galifianakis we haven't seen much of because he's been busy with his FX series Baskets. So uh, it'll be good to see him, you know, re- return to movie making. Uh, again, would I pay $10 at a, at a theater to see it? No. But if it's coming as part of my $10 a month subscription to Netflix, yeah, I'll, I'll click on that, that tile and uh, give it 45 minutes to entertain me. Um... What else, guys? I mean, you know, Oscar race, you're going to hear a lot about it. Uh, things are heating up. My roommate, Anthony, <laughs> shout out to Anthony, he's a big uh, gambler, and he showed me that on one site, because I gamble on the Oscars each year, and I, and I tend to make money. But on the sites that I gamble on, uh, the Oscars are not available. But on the sites that Anthony gambles on, they are available, and he shared with me some of the odds. I, again, I don't have them in front of me, because naturally I left my phone at my desk when I went in to record this. But the, the front runners were like, you know, The Irishman and Marriage Story and 
you know, I feel like you can you could really make some money this season by by betting on an underdog. I just have a hard time believing that a three and a half hour gangster movie starring De Niro and Pacino is 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 going to win Best Picture, which typically goes to a movie that like says something about where we see ourselves. Um, and Marriage Story, same sort of thing, like a Netflix divorce dramedy. I'm sure it's great. I'm sure it's great. But Best Picture, I'll have to see it to, before I make any of those ju- judgments. I mean, I, I, I just think that, you know, if you are a, a gambler, who's someone who's inclined uh, to put a little money down on, on early Oscars action, I, I would look elsewhere. I, I still have a hard time thinking that the industry would give Netflix Best Picture. It's not what I said last year because, I, you know, people were talking about – uh, how Roma could never win because it's a Netflix movie and, and the Academy simply won't give it to Netflix. I don't think that that's necessarily true. I think Roma could have won last year if it was a better movie. And maybe Marriage Story and Irishman will be those better movies. Netflix also has The Two Popes, which really came out of Telluride with a lot of heat. Um, and, and people are predicting it to be the audience uh, award winner in Toronto. We'll see about that. Clearly, Netflix has a great slate. But, you know, there are still films like Just Mercy and Queen and Slim and, and a couple of others uh, that, that could surprise. That's all. I think it's going to be an interesting Oscar season. And I hope you'll join us, uh, follow along, and watch FYC for your consideration here on Collider Video. Um, and also tune in, you know, to, to this podcast, the Snyder Cut, because I'm going to be talking about it a lot. I'm going to try to have some fun with it. I'm going to try to bring in some, some Oscar prognosticator people who may be better one-on-one with me than in a group format with the FYC folks. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Um, other things to plug. I told you, watch Meet the Movie Press. Also check out uh, the, the Hard Knocks finale recap that I taped with Mark Fernandez. Kind of went out with a, a whimper this week. You know, if only uh, Hard Knocks had extended its stay a couple more days at uh, the Raiders training camp. They could have gotten all this juicy Antonio Brown, Mike Mayock drama. Uh, and then also be sure to check out Collider Sports Time where I, I sat with uh, Winston and John Roca. And uh, yeah, we had a blast just talking NFL last night's opener against the Bears and the Packers. When Roga starts talking about college football, he loses me. I don't watch that stuff. Guys, I got too many movies and television to watch. I can't keep up with it all. Um, this weekend... I'm going to the Alec Baldwin roast. Make sure you tune into Collider to check out what fun video I'm going to be able to cut from my interviews on the red carpet. That should be a lot of fun. I'm also going to drop uh, you know, the top 10, 15 best jokes from that roast about a week before it airs on Comedy Central. So that should prime you and, and serve as a, a nice appetizer for, for that experience. Um, but, yeah, that'll do it for the Snyder Cut, uh, or at least this portion of the Snyder Cut. Guys, coming up, we have an interview with Scott Beck and Brian Woods. The writers of A Quiet Place, they tell us a little bit about the sequel. They tell us about a Mahershala Ali project that they're working on. They tell us about a Sam Raimi thing that they have up their sleeves. They're working on a Stephen King adaptation. You won't believe the stuff that these guys say. They didn't hold anything back. So please stay tuned for the interview with Scott Beck and Brian Woods, uh, who you can also follow on Twitter at Beck, uh, Beck and Woods. And again... Keep an ear out because there is a gigantic rumor of the week in the middle, in the middle of that interview. Even the writers themselves were were shocked and surprised. Uh, again, don't think it's going to come to fruition, but boy, it is good food for thought. Uh, all right, guys, interviews coming up. Have a great weekend. Enjoy. Bye.
All right, so as teased at the top of the hour, we have an exciting interview now with Scott Beck and Brian Woods, the writers of A Quiet Place, who have a new movie that they directed called Haunt in theaters and on VOD next Friday, the 13th, right, of September, right, guys? Correct, yes. All right, guys, well, thanks for coming in. Um, let's, Let's dig right, let's just... Dive right in. Yeah, let's talk let's about. Do it. Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, it's been it's been a big year, year and a half, two years for you guys. Yeah. T- take me a little bit through the journey uh, th- from from you know basically writing a quiet uh, a quiet place, selling uh-huh. it to, to Paramount, Pl- Paramount uh, and Platinum Dunes, getting Krasinski. You have the huge South by premiere. I mean, yeah. it has to have been a roller coaster to get you to this point. It yeah. has. I mean, I look at the calendar. Um, three years ago, 2016, uh, we had the draft for a quiet place, and I think we about closed our deal with Platinum Dunes and Paramount. And this was before John and Emily were even in the mix. It was just, it was a script that um, we had written and had been writing over the course of like 10 years in terms of collecting the ideas and and trying to do something that felt a little bonkers, like doing a a horror movie with essentially no dialogue and pitching that and being met with a lot of, you know, dazed over looks of uh, people that thought it wouldn't work. Which is so funny because like people talk about the high concept and how like it feels like a big idea that that should be done on a studio level. But when we pitched it to people, they thought it was stupid. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was the dumbest thing ever. And we got really self-conscious about the idea because we're like, it's really? It's a bad idea? We think mm-hmm. it's cool. So we had to like – we really had to get it on paper before people understood what it was. But at that, that same point in 2016, while writing A Quiet Place, we were actually writing Haunt simultaneously. It okay. was um, a producer, Todd Garner, who we had worked with on a, on a TV pilot that never, never went to air, never got shot. But we had a great relationship. He came to us being like, what if we take this uh, abandoned factory location that he scouted in Atlanta and turn that into a haunted house? Could we build a movie off of that? We're like – Sure, we'll we'll go to task on on an assignment and just try that. So we were writing both those movies simultaneously in 2016. Um, like Brian would be working on Quiet Place, I'd be working on Haunt. We'd okay. switch pages back and forth, and they both were scratching a different itch of horror. Um, you know, Quiet Place. We we always joke with the term like quote elevated horror, where it's 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 something it's a term that's being thrown around. But for us, while writing Quiet Place, we're like ah fuck that term. Like we just want to write a down and dirty like slasher movie in the vein of John Carpenter and and we want to feel like when we were kids going into a VHS store and seeing like the cover of a really scary movie and being like I dare you to rent that. <laughs> so those those two loves of horror um you know were written simultaneously in 2016 and 2017 was like when things actually got greenlit simultaneously which was the craziest thing in the world cuz as a screenwriter you write things that you just know are going to get stuck in development. We just assume every project will never get made and that's like we spent you know most it's a good of rule our, of thumb it, it is. is. It's yeah. a great you rule of thumb. You live happier that way. This, this town is uh, can be so depressing on all fronts, whether it's media or agents or wh- whatever facet of the business you work in. It's tough, right? Like you got like everybody has to hustle. Right, like you you guys seem to, to many uh, like an overnight mm-hmm. sensation, but we know you know that you're, yeah. it took years to get there. Yeah, yeah. thank you for pointing that out because like yeah, we had you know at least um, ten years as professionals of just kind of failing, like like what, what, whatever that means, like selling scripts that never got made. Not selling scripts, having TV shows that never got off the ground, being attached to direct big studio projects that didn't get Chris Pratt, so the studio put in a turnaround. Right. Like lots of failures. So we're writing 
A Quiet Place and Haunt at the same time. By the way, even if you get Chris Pratt, mm-hmm. they will still put in a turnaround. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well sorry, said. sorry well to interrupt. Said. No, I, I love that. You're absolutely right. So we're writing these two movies assuming neither one will get made, but that's just what we do. We love movies and we love to make movies and, and, um, and they were both kind of burning passion. So the last year has been quite a whirlwind because they both ended up getting made um, unrelated to each other. Um, and A Quiet Place, we were grateful that, like, it actually caught on because, again, we had no idea. I think even, like, everyone involved, John, Emily, the producers, Brad and Drew, Michael Bay, we all believed in it, but it was, like, cautious optimism because it also could have fallen on its face because it was mm-hmm. such a weird kind of movie. Sure. Um, so, so, and then when I interviewed you guys, you know, for that movie last year when I was at Tracking Board or whatever, yeah. Uh, you had already wrapped Hunt. So this right. has been in the can for a, a while. For uh, sure. To a certain degree, yeah. We finished the movie post-production uh, maybe last August. And it's it's a Halloween movie. So we like just barely missed the window for releasing it last year. Right. Because we mean. were an independent production. Like we, we had to go through the hoops of all the distribution. Um, but yeah, we – like last year, I, I remember opening weekend um, of A Quiet Place, like April 2018. And we would go to, like, the New York premiere, and it'd be a big celebration of the movie. But then Monday morning, we'd have to fly back and confront ourselves with Haunt in post-production. Like, anyone that's gone through editing their own movie, they know it's a torturous process. And you're always trying to figure out, how does how can I get this movie to work up until the day that they shut down the edit bay and kick you out and you don't get the keys to get back in? <laughs> and so, for us, it was um, kind of the perfect summation of what the film industry is. That you can have the high highs, but you have to ha- also confront the low lows when you're like, I have to go back into the trenches get my hands dirty and get this movie on its feet. And that's how it always goes. Like even today, like Haunt is about to come out and we have um, a really fun screening coming up at the Egyptian and and we're like trying to enjoy it, but we're also like in the fog of war on another project where like tensions are high and everything's going crazy and it's like, you know, we have a hard time pulling ourselves away and enjoying the the kind of romance of, of making movies because um, we're very sensitive and we're always like and we and we care a lot. So it's just how it goes. That's just how it's going to be. But um, but we love what we do. So, so tell tell the listeners uh, a little bit about Haunt, what it's about. It, and mm-hmm. obviously it involves the world of extreme haunted houses. I've done yes. one of those out here. And it, it was it was nuts. <laughs> You're braver than um, us. I really liked I really liked the movie. Oh, I, I had a lot of fun with it. Thank I you. liked Will Britton a lot. Yeah. Yes. Um, he's cool. Yeah. So so. Yeah, just t- tell us what folks are in store for. Absolutely. I mean, again, it's it's kind of our ode to like Toby Hooper's The Fun House or John Carpenter's Halloween where where it's a roller coaster ride. So it focuses on our protagonist Harper who is this um, young woman who's confronting a lot in her life but keeps it under the surface and that's like an abusive relationship and and a backstory with with a lot of uh, trauma in it. That all comes to a head on Halloween night where she decides to kind of shrug off all of her issues. She goes out with a bunch of her friends to go to a night of haunted housing. They end up at an extreme haunted house where you have to sign a waiver. And, of course, once they get in there, everything that actually is feels deadly is actually deadly. So. And it was just kind of like, you know, from growing up in Iowa from the Midwest and, like, we don't have – Halloween Horror Nights. We don't have the safety of Fright Fest at Six Flags. Like, we have creepy-ass haunted houses in the middle of nowhere. some weirdo, yeah. Some weirdo's (laughs) hobby to scare people for a living. And, you know, 
we just like growing up, we loved doing that. There was like something really fun um, about that. And writing this movie was a bit of nostalgia for us, but it was also just like, what's the worst possible version of what could happen? And that's what we wrote. That's what so, so did you guys tour any extreme haunted houses? Have you have you been through any of these experiences? <laughs> we've we've never gotten to the point where like you get waterboarded or anything. <laughs> uh, we're, we're too afraid to do that. But um, one of the fun things was that we actually shot this movie over the Halloween season in Cincinnati. And so part of our, our uh, mantra was like, let's just let's just soak in the Halloween atmosphere. We took our cast and crew, our production designer, our team to haunted houses in the area just to get inspiration and a see how that A disturbing amount of works. our cast members had never been to a haunted house before. We're like, mm-hmm. you guys crazy? So taking them through, watching them get scared, but then also like scribbling down like little notes about how they would do different things. It was it was fun. It was yeah. a really cool movie to shoot. Um, t- tell me about some of the masks in, in this movie yeah. because I, I thought that they were really cool. Do, do you, when you're doing something like this, do you go through like 50 or 100 different masks to find just the right yeah. one? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think first and foremost, our inspiration point was vintage Halloween masks from like the 40s and 50s, mm-hmm. where back then I think they were designing them to be very innocent. But you look at like stock photos that are vintage nowadays and it's horrifying like the the simplicity of it has been perverted somehow over over the last decades and we enlisted um our production designer austin gorg who did art direction on like la la land and neon demon and spike jones's her like these incredibly visual feasts that um had nothing to do with the horror genre and what we wanted to do was bring him into the horror world and just see how he would kind of approach it. And one of the first things he did was start designing all these various masks and trying to make them sim- very simple but also hopefully unnerving and even more so unnerving once you finally get the reveal of what's behind that mask. And also distinct because it's like, you know, Ghostface and Scream happened already. Like how do you mm-hmm. do a diff- how do you do a ghost differently? How do you do a clown differently? So he had to f- ride that line and and he did just such a beautiful job. It's one of our favorite things about the movie. Uh, so you mentioned Todd, Todd Garner, who actually has a podcast of his own, by the way. It's really yeah. good, The Producer's Guide. Yep. Um, Eli Roth is also involved with uh-huh. this one. Did he come on after the film was shot? Like, no, no. When, like, tell me when and how he got involved it with was this such one. A dream, it was such a dream call. It, was like, it, was, it reminded us of the day we found out that John and Emily were interested in A Quiet Place. We got a phone call um, from Todd and our other producer, Jeremy Stein, and they said they had been talking to Eli about a different project, and Eli was saying, he, oh, I always really want to do a haunted house movie. Mm-hmm. I've been trying to crack that for years. I've been developing several projects, just never figured it out. And Todd was like, oh, well, we have this this script by Beck Woods. It literally just – like a draft just came in. Would you want to read it? Um, he took a, re- took a look at it, loved it. Called us in. We went into the the edit room on Death Wish uh, as he was uh, oh, editing cool. his Bruce Willis movie, and he was the coolest, nicest guy ever. And he had really smart notes. Um, he was all about talking about. Like, we th- we go in there and we're like, "What's Eli's notes on the script going to be? Is going to be more eye gouges? Is going to be like heads falling off? Because mm-hmm. he's the master of you know torture gore." And um, it was all about it was all about character and nuance, and, mm-hmm. and that was so cool to hear. And in retrospect. We were like, of course it's all about character. Like all of his movies, if you really look at them, it's 45 minutes of character every single time um, before the before the stuff gets shocking. So um, he was an awesome collaborator. He's also um, who we want to be. Like he's like our dream like filmmaker, producer. Like we want to be that guy because he's the first person to read a new draft of the script. He's the first person to like weigh in on an email, pick up the phone. Like that's who you want on your side. He was awesome. So you guys are interested in sort of producing and presenting 
watching other filmmakers works almost like Eli does. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And we're we're getting into that right now. Like there's mm. an old uh, older script of ours that in the wake of A Quiet Place, we feel very fortunate there's kind of a resurgence of interest in that. And we've, we've been able to set that up. Hasn't been announced yet, but but we're bringing on other writers that we just admire. And that collaboration is something that we, we always want to look forward to. The, the other guys that I wanted to ask you about working with mm-hmm. uh, were Tom and Andy. Yes. I, I've been a fan of yeah. their work. Yes. Oh, thank you the for Moth, bringing them up. Since the Mothman like, yeah. days. Yes, yeah. Mothman yeah. Prophecies. That's I mean, one of their best that's I tried to watch scores. it with my girlfriend a few weeks ago, and it, we got about halfway, and she was like, I'm just not feeling this. <laughs> really? like, Whatever, I get it, I get it. But I love yeah. Tom and Andy's work. So, so talk, talk to me about bring them into the fold and, yeah. and what they cont- contributed and, and added to this movie. Well, I remember when we were maybe even as early as the writing phase, certainly in production, we were listening to some of their scores like The Monster. And what they nailed really well is not just the horror but also the emotion. Mm-hmm. And it was a dream to, to be able to just to talk to them. And their dynamic is incredible because it reminds us very much of ours where – there's two of us, which means we're actually not very precious with our individual ideas. It's like best idea wins. And they approach the collaboration the same way where they can send us something and we give them like a few more notes and they'll come back and completely recraft it. And they're eager and excited to do that. No ego. Like like they'll just trash something. They'll, they'll do like an amazing piece of music and we're like – wow, this is amazing, but it feels like it fits in The Shining and not yeah. hot, and they'll scrap it. They're like, totally get it, totally get it. Like, just the easiest guys to work but, with. But I love that you're into Mothman Prophecies. I actually oh, yeah. showed my wife that recently, and uh, she she dug it, thankfully. But that's one of their best scores. They do such mm-hmm. great work, and it was an honor to, to, to work mm-hmm. with them. Yeah, I like, I like that. Early, those early early uh, Mark Pellington movies, like yeah. Ghosts sure. and Road and whatnot. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so when I interviewed you guys last year, I asked you a little bit about, you know, what the, the writing process is like between the mm-hmm. two of you, and you sort of mentioned just now about, you know, you'll, you'll do pages and, and hand them to each other and stuff. But, you know, directing is a different gig uh, mm-hmm. and there's a lot more responsibility. So how do the two of you guys divide the work? Are one of you stronger working with, with the actors and the others more, you know, uh, interested in the shot and the lighting and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff? T- tell me how it works. No, um, 100% we work on everything simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that in part goes, goes to the fact that we have known each other since we were 11. We've been working together just as long. And so we've grown up with the same inspirations in terms of what movies we love and shot designs we love. A lot of our process, though, is having all our arguments um, before anybody else is you know, part of the collaborative team. So we'll storyboard everything meticulously and discuss um, the pros and cons of one person's approach versus the other. Uh, but once we're on set, like in terms of uh, dictating the camera, like we'll both work with our DP. Um, in terms of the actors, we'll both go up to the actors and give the notes together. So it's not like a division of labor by any means. It's really just a, a handshake, and we hope that we're bringing twice the amount of ideas to the table. Yeah, it's kind of like an um, invisible umbilical cord between us. Like we have to like follow each other around because if one person says something to the actor and the other one's not there, then we might contradict each other, and that gets super awkward. We learned yeah. not to do that when we were like 12 years old uh, trying to direct our friends in uh, crappy B movies. <laughs> so, yeah. you, you guys have been making movies together for years, but do, do you consider this your directorial debut in a sense or, or no? no it, it's funny because to a certain degree, no, because we've been directing ever since right. we could pick up a camera. I mean, but, certainly. But having said that, we would never want to be judged by our student films that were <laughs> yes, making no true. money. I mean, they're yeah. not uh, up to snuff, of course, but it was, yeah. our, it was a film I would, I would certainly sort. say like this was um, where we started feeling like we could sink our visual teeth into something like with a little bit of money and a right. little bit more resource than we otherwise had so sure. yeah 
Um, do you guys have a favorite kill in this without giving away mm. who, who, who meets their demise and how? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's why you, you watch these kinds of movies it's for true. these awesome kill scenes. Uh, and some of you know the stuff in Haunt reminded me a little of, of Saw. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so did you have a favorite Absolutely. kill scene? I mean, um, I'm glad you're bringing this up. Like, let's not be snobs about the horror genre. Like, not everything has to be the witch. Like, this yeah. movie right. is fun to dive into the kills and ride up on the I would say the, the one that comes to mind uh, without going too far into spoilers involves um, a hammer and a mouth. And yes. mm. I, like, it was written to a certain degree to reflect that, but um, it hit critical mass in the grossest way possible when our special effects guy got on the team. And he's like, oh, what if you like put a hammer in a mouth and then you peel back? Like, What would that look like? Oof. And we're like, I don't know. You're crazy <laughs> enough to build a rig and find out. Like, Let's do it. <laughs> and it was all – and we also love that shot because it's all practical. Like, There's mm-hmm. there's a lot of practical effects yes. in the film. Um, some of them have CG enhancement, but that one is all practical, which yeah. is fun. That's it's what fun. I really yeah. appreciated about it. It has an old school sort of vibe, and cool. you know, it, it too, uh, come, you know, re- recently came out. I guess yeah. it's coming out today. This, yeah. this podcast is will air today, um, and it just I felt like it was too CG heavy. Uh-huh. Uh, so I, I, I like the sort of back to the basics uh, offered offered by Hunt. How did you feel about the first? It is it one better than the other? I, I thought the first one was was a little bit better. Yeah. Gotcha. That, we haven't was, seen the new one yet. But I was disappointed. I feel like both. In both movies, the first five minutes, that opening sequence yes. is great, and then it just kind of becomes the, like the, the opening five right. minutes of the first one was so good. So um, good. And speaking of Stephen King, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he, he gave you guys a shout out for for a quiet place and it made your day. And now I, uh, I understand you guys are working on the Boogeyman. Yes, so, yes, we are. So, yeah. so t- how is that adaptation going? Is it still it's good? Is it active? I mean, it's, it's, still it's, it's, Fox. it's, it's one it's still of the uh, the few projects that we feel fortunate, as far as we know, as what as of this recording. Maybe we'll get yeah. a phone call in an hour and. <laughs> it's dead, but it's uh, Disney's the Boogeyman right now, you know. So it's great branding. It's a new Disney princess we're writing, um, but it's 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 a dream come true because that short story, the Boogeyman, um, out of like his entire night shift uh, collection always stuck with us it was one that got in our head and it's it's funny because it's horrifying but there's only it's only 12 pages there's there's not a ton of story there per se and that's one of the things that we really loved is you can have one footprint from stephen king but then it also gives us a lot of bandwidth to build something original upon it too and you know still you you want to pay an ode to stephen king you're playing in a sandbox but in post quiet place we wanted to kind of combine our love of horror and also dealing with character dramas and so we feel like it has a kinship to to a quiet place in playing in both those worlds so. um did you get to talk to to steven about it uh, do you have any any advice about adapting it or no uh not yet so far super hands off but i mean eventually that okay. that comes cuz he does read every script that sure. that he produces and we've got a ticking clock yeah, on us right so, now so. so we're certainly uh <laughs> we're certainly nervously awaiting the day but um the cool thing about Stephen King with all of his adaptations is that he knows that movies are different than books and he's historically very hands off which is why there's so many amazing adaptations because he lets the filmmakers make the film which well, is awesome I had never read The Boogeyman and then when I saw the announcement about you guys I went and mm-hmm. read it since it was only oh, 12 pages cool. and yeah. I was like oh I totally get what they what they would see in this nice. yeah. really yep. cool um, uh, there's another project that you guys had announced Sovereign yeah. with Mahershala Ali yeah. any, any update on that? 
Um, it's it's in the process of you know being vetted and everything. But right. um, we we came on board from an original script um, written by Talkin Weidman, who did an incredible job um, of writers. creating this this sci-fi universe that's also very character driven. And I think that script is something that when it came across our desk, we were like, we just want to you know do whatever we can lend to get this vision across the table. And um, having Mahershala sign on is the perfect type of casting. Like without really being able to speak about the script per se, it is very much a character drama on a big canvas, and he's going to lend something incredible to and it. And he's so. an amazing collaborator. Mm-hmm. He's just, he's a great person and, and incredibly, you know, he's creative, and we've all seen his work. We know he's a he's a genius, um, but I think people will be really excited about this film because it's unlike anything he's done before. And, and, and we're talking about a man who's like Every role he does is unlike anything he's ever done before, which mm-hmm. is fun. But like this really props him up in a really cool kind of big sci-fi action-y way. It's did awesome. he sign on after winning the, the Oscar for Green Book? He did. Yeah. That's what's that crazy. Was like the first yeah, thing that he was that, the first thing he did. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it, was, so, it was really nuts. But and now we see he's doing Blade, which is so yeah, cool. Right. But he's just like the nicest, most down-to-earth, humble guy that is um, just – hungry to to work it's not you know resting on your laurels at all with him so um well i think that speaks highly uh, you know regarding the draft that you guys uh, did to, to to you know lower that kind of talent in and i will say since i didn't do it earlier in the show this week's rumor of the week <laughs> will involve Mahershal Ali. Uh, again, I, I don't. I don't think that this is happening. This is this would this would be huge news if it mm-hmm. happened. Um, but I, I had heard that Matt Reeves was actually talking to him about being Commissioner Gordon. Oh, really? Oh, interesting. Wow. Yeah, I, 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 th- I think yeah. that the Blade totally thing probably took that off the table. You know, now yeah. that he got his his own Marvel movie, I don't know that he's looking to do an- yet another comic book movie. But yeah, I'm pretty sure he was Matt Reeves' first choice for Commissioner Gordon wow. in the Batman. Um, one I wanted to ask you guys about a couple of other things, uh, in, you know, brewing. Um, so mm-hmm. you have A Quiet Place 2. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the sequel is is coming. You guys aren't really involved or what, yeah, what is yeah. the situation so much, we're with that? Not, we're not sequel guys. Like right. we felt like – and honestly, to John's credit, he isn't either. I mean I don't think he – we all kind of talked – like none of us really saw it as a sequel or a franchise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we decided in the wake of A Quiet Place that we wanted to use this opportunity to get new crazy ideas out there and that that film – because it's been – believe me, like it's been so hard to get original ideas into the marketplace at the studio level because everything, literally everything is an adaptation, mm-hmm. comic book movie, whatever, yep. reboot. Um, so we had this new idea for another crazy big kind of original – um, hopefully mind-melting um, movie, and we kind of put all of our chips on that. And hopefully that's something we'll announce in another month or two. But it's our favorite thing we've ever written. And, um, well, you can always come back here on well, the Snapchat yeah. podcast for <laughs> Absolutely. that. Absolutely. We'd, yeah. we'd love to. But I think for us it was just like trying to make sure that we're learning the right lessons from the success and leaning into um, you know that same passion that we were feeling when writing this, the first movie in the first place. So. But, the, mean, but like, Quiet Place 2 is like it's almost wrapping. Like it's like, like we're excited. Like it's – and I mean it's cool that people are excited. Listen, for I'm a genre fan. I, this is yes. what I want to hear. I want to <laughs> hear this – You know, guys who, who are using their success and their heat in the industry to continue making original movies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I just didn't know if it was you know hard to sort of watch your baby sort of grow up sure. with another parent. Yeah. It'll be it'll be bizarre. It it'll will be, be a bizarre yeah. experience. But we're, I mean, the fact that it, it found an audience in the first place is something that uh, you know we always hope for, but you never can take that for granted. And so we we are excited that there is an appetite for more. You guys did mention last year that you uh, had a few set pieces that were on your <laughs> MS Word docs. Yes, I didn't know if any had actually been incorporated into the sequel, or if you're just saving them for for your own <laughs> those, things. Those are being saved. I so, gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, 
what is going on? You know, with with the, where do you guys stand on the the Writers Guild situation with the ATA? Yeah. Like, has yeah. that affected you at all? It's so, it... it's so complicated. To be honest, it hasn't really affected us other than like emotionally, like because it's like we like our agents. It's kind of this weird thing. Also, we're still kind of rep by our agents as producers and directors, but uh, not writers. So, so you had to fire them as writers, yes. but technically yes. they get some that's correct. That, uh, yeah, that's producers. correct. And a lot of people are doing that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. From and, what I understand, and I, you know, I, I think we all just wish it would get resolved sooner rather than later. It's um, it, it, it is all kind of a mess, and the agencies do have an obscene amount of power in this business. Like when, when you look at all the facets of you know, like there's directors, there's writers, there's agents, there's producers, there's studios, there's entertainment journalists. Like we all have our little carved out our little space in the mm-hmm. the ecosystem, and agents take out a very powerful po- part of that pie. Um, so I think the writers. Guild is right to kind of say, well, hold on here. Like this is like this is our work, and you need to represent us. You need to do right by us. So it's a fight worth having. Um, but man, we hope it gets resolved soon because eventually it will start to affect us a little bit more. Sure. Um, and then the you know the other sort of big thing that's in the news this week, as far as writers go, you know, you have the whole crazy rich Asians pay right. dispute. I don't know. I mean, I I know that that's a very complicated situation, mm-hmm. and and it's and it's a very nuanced discussion. But I was just wondering if you guys had any thoughts when you see. Something like that, where one writer is getting eight hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars and the other one's getting a hundred thousand. Yeah, I mean, I, I we I, w- I wouldn't say we've been in that exact position, but I can totally relate to emotionally how frustrating that is, especially mm-hmm. when you look at at a writer that's been working in TV since I think two thousand and one or something. Right. Like they've they've they're clearly talented, paid their dues. There's no reason they should be you know getting the short straw on the heels of a, such a successful movie. Right. Everybody should be be paid fairly, and I feel like as a writer, sometimes you have to really fight for for your supper. So. The only thing I would add to that is it's also clearly a PR nightmare for the studio. So mm-hmm. it's just like, what are they doing? Right, <laughs> it, exactly. Yeah. And, I, and I and I did ask people that, like, isn't it just worth it to make this go away? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Nah, it's just 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 interesting. Um, you guys see anything, any good movies this summer? I, you know, I, I know we're coming to an end. I got to yeah. leave you guys in a few, but uh, anything stand out? Um, uh, Ari Aster's uh, Midsommar, like that was a movie that floored me. Um, like you know, when watching that movie, something bad is going to happen, and you just feel it in your own pulse. And the anxiety that I felt for like the first, I don't know, thirty, forty, fifty minutes before the other shoe drops um, is something I haven't felt in a long time. So that's an experience that has really stuck with me. I dug Longshot. I dug mm-hmm. Booksmart. Like these other films. I mean, we're not not saying anything creative here. I'm trying to think, like, dig deep, like, what is something we like that not everybody, like, universally acclaim, like, whatever. What did you like this summer? What are we forgetting? What are we not thinking? I of? mean, I, I liked a lot of movies that sort of came and went, like uh, Wild Rose and, mm. and Blinded by oh, the yeah. Light and, yep. you know, the, the, these festival acquisitions that then, you know, didn't really perform. Sure, right. sure. I, I like Late yeah. Night and Longshot a lot. Yeah, yes. Late Night was good. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, That's yeah. kind of the state of the indie, indie business, these movies that are so terrific and made so well, and then it's just, like, such a tiny little window for them to kind of come out and they either catch a wave or they don't and oftentimes they don't it's it's kind of a bummer in comedies especially too it's like really hard it's like brutal out there there's right a now. lot of good summer summer tv too between chernobyl and and sure. Eva DuVernay's, uh right. thing and, and um the roger ailes series and yep. nick reffin the amazon series so yep. i've just like been in like tv world yeah for, totally for yeah. M- yeah. much of the summer absolutely yep. um guys anything anything else cooking anything else you want to talk about 
What? Oh man, I, I don't know that we can share anything else that okay. we have on our plate. There's we're, something with Sam Raimi yeah, that's so going to happen. Yeah, we're doing something with Sam so, Raimi, yeah. and that has been so cool. He's yep. the nicest guy. It's like never meet your heroes unless your hero is Sam Raimi because yeah. he is uh, wonderful. He's told us so many great stories too <laughs> um, about because he used to share a house in Silver Lake with the Cohen brothers back Holy in the eighties before anybody were, was. They were anybody. nobodies. Like imagine this: like you're the Cohen brothers, but not the Cohen brothers yet. And he talks you're living about with Sam Raimi, who's nobody. You're living with Francis, Francis McDormand. McDormand and Katie, uh, Kathy Bates. Uh, <laughs> wow. And there, there was one more, I, one other name I'm forgetting, but um, Sam was joking. He's like, everybody has gone on to have huge careers, but I'm the only one without an Oscar at this point. <laughs> <laughs> but we kind of love that because Alfred Hitchcock never got that Oscar exactly. either. So. Yeah. Um, well, Haunt opens on September th- the 13th, Friday the 13th. Friday it's a good date for you guys, right? Yeah, perfect. we love it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, make sure that you check it out because I, I definitely enjoyed it and I know that Perry liked it as well. She's off in Toronto. Uh, guys, where, where can folks find you online? Yeah, we're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Beck and Woods. If you want to hear any depressing, uh, demoralizing stories about the film business, we often uh, we're your guys. Diary. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like you guys have. have uh, I, I like your Twitter feed. It's inspirational. Oh, You're thanks. always like, listen, two two years ago we were the guy. You know, no one had heard of us. And yeah. Now look at us. And you just got engaged as well, right? Yeah, I did. Thank you. Yeah, I'm married actually. Married. Oh, married. Yeah. Excuse married me. officially. Yeah. Yeah, but thank congratulations, thank guys. You so thank much. you for coming in. Thank you. Uh, that'll do it for for this episode of the Snyder Cut. You can find me on Twitter or Facebook cameo at at the Insnyder. Guys, have a wonderful weekend. We'll be back next week to talk about the Toronto Film Festival. Stay little chico pitbull, Mr. 305, better said Mr. Worldwide, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game, so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply.